The following podcast is brought to you by the Village Zendo. For more information, visit villagezendo.org. Um, for those of you that I haven't met, my name is Echo, and I'm a student here at the Village Zendo. I live away from the city, uh, and I just love that we've evolved this way to really connect with each other over time and space. Um, my life would be so less rich without it. Um, I've been practicing outside the city now for over 20 years, maybe even close to 30. Uh, and what a difference it has made to me the last couple of years to have you all available in this way. And then there's this great opportunity to speak with you. And when I'm preparing a Dharma talk, um, it's this great like focusing mechanism for me, sort of like sitting on the Dokusan line for a really long time. Um, it's, um, it's just not possible without your support. So um, thank you for, um, for showing up. Um, someone asked me, what's the purpose of a Dharma talk? Shouldn't we just be sitting? And well, yes, we should just be sitting. Um, but for me, the Dharma talk is all about just attempting to point. And when I'm listening to a Dharma talk, when I can actually hear it, um, sometimes it strikes a deep chord in me uh, moments and it will bring laughter or tears or sometimes just a yes um, when I hear something. So um, I think that's the point of a Dharma talk is just to, you know, the, the speaker is trying to point and hopefully the um, those that are listening are, um, are listening. But here we are. Um, it is uh, fall in the part of the world where I am just now. Uh, it's a great, brilliant fall. Uh, we even had a little bit of snow yesterday, which is a big treat for me. And those big wet snowflakes that come down early in the season. And I'm just like a six-year-old when that happens. Um, the air is really crisp and uh, the air is cool uh, on my skin and the colors are just amazing. I grew up in the desert, and so this is always a, uh, just an amazing time of year for me. The, the bright yellows and the oranges and the reds and then all the colors in between those that I can name. Um, and just so many opportunities to just look and then to listen to the really distinctive crunch of those leaves under my feet and the extra geese in the neighborhood who are making their noises. And um, I realize summer here in the Northeast uh, can be pretty frantic. Um, it's really short and spring is late and winter comes early. Uh, but for me, fall is just this great opportunity um, to just be here. And um, some of you know that I spend my summers and my fall in Chautauqua, New York, which is in the western part of New York State, sort of just off of Lake Erie, just east of Lake Erie, south of Buffalo. And um, some of you will also remember or know that this is the place where the author Salmon Rushdie um, was stabbed this summer. And I want to talk a little about that because I was there um, in the audience when that happened. Um, he was scheduled to speak on freedom of speech in our big amphitheater. It holds about 5,000 people. And he and his interview, interviewer uh, were just settled down in these big lounge chairs that we have on the stage and just getting ready to talk. They were waiting to be introduced. And um, we had about, as I say, about 5,000 people. It was a pretty full day in the amphitheater. And then they just suddenly this man just rushed the stage and he started just pummeling Rushdie. And, um, and Rushdie couldn't move because of the way he was seated in the lounge chair. And 
I didn't know at that moment that the attacker had a knife, which is this pummeling that you could see going on. And honestly, I don't know how he survived uh, knowing now that, that he had a knife. Just this, this pummeling just seemed like it went on forever. I know it was just probably seconds, maybe maybe a minute or more, but it, 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 it was like time froze um, just then. What I did experience was, you know, the audience gasp. Um, there, then there was blood. There was a lot of blood. Um, several people from the audience rushed up on the stage, um, and a few that were on the stage and tried to sort of get the attacker and get him off or get him down. Um, and the interviewer, um, Henry Reese, um, himself was injured as he tried to hold on to the legs of the attacker um, and, and get him off of, um, of, of stabbing uh, Mr. Rushdie. And I was really fortunate not to be in one of the front rows. I cannot imagine what it was like for those um, that were. And, but my experience as a member of the audience, um, when I look back on it, was, um, was really what I wanted to talk about tonight. So there are thousands of people here. And, and what I experienced was people all standing up, leaning in, wanting to help. There wasn't hysteria. There wasn't panic running away from what was happening. There was just this leaning in and wanting to help. Um, and really not being able to do so from the positions most of us were in. I really didn't experience any fear in that moment, although when I got home later, I was definitely shaking. Um, but just wanted to help, like the rest of the audience. Um, if I think back on that moment, I, I wonder why I didn't experience fear. There was at least one angry man uh, who was there who was wielding a knife. Uh, intent on doing harm. Um, but the impulse wasn't fear, it was wanting to help. When I got home, um, I knocked on my next door neighbor's door to see how they were doing. They weren't home, but they came by not too much later and they knocked on my door to see how I was doing. We talked about it a bit, we shared our experience and then, then I got a hug, which was really nice. Um, so this place, Chautauqua was started about 150 years ago. It was on Christian foundations, sort of a summer school, I think, for, um, for uh, Sunday school teachers, something like that. But it's morphed over this time into this really multicultural, ecumenical place. It's still a little wider than we'd like it to be, although there's some progress uh, even there. Uh, but that's, that's a digression. This place is really devoted to a spirit of inquiry, to civil dialogue about differences, and about listening to each other. And then we had this thing happen here, this, this moment uh, where there was an attack. And as a community, we really had, we had two choices. We could move into that fear uh, or we could acknowledge this event. We could add a few reasonable precautions and we could move forward. And that's really the path that's been taken so far. We had about a 24-hour period or so where events were canceled while people figured out, you know, was it more than one person, sort of what was going on. But, but then the amphitheater reopened, and uh, it opened with a beautiful ballet performance. It was really well attended. Um, but in between and before and after, there were dialogues on the porches here about what happened, why it happened, 
and what you know our individual and collective responses would be. The community really came together and helped each other through it, just like my neighbors helped me that afternoon and, and how I hope I helped them. So why do we help? I mean, even when we don't know why we help, we still do it. Um, it's just a really strong impulse in us. It's a, an underlying impulse at the core of what we do. We can obscure it. I certainly obscure mine uh, many times in many ways, but somehow it can't be thrown away. We have this really beautiful study text right now uh, that I have just really fallen in love with called the Komiozo Zanmai. Thank you so much, um, Tarshuso, for choosing this. Um, but it points to something it calls the great luminosity, the great luminosity with no location. Just thought, how Zen is that, right? We're pointing to something with no location. Um, but this great luminosity with no location, it's not just when we're sitting, it, it's not just during Zazen, it's in our every step, our every action, it's everywhere. I had a friend who called recently, um, she was full of tears, it was late at night, and um, sort of an odd, very odd time for her to call me. Um, but someone very close to her had just been diagnosed with uh, recurrence of cancer, a metastasized cancer. In only a year since the chemo and the radiation and the surgeries this woman had been through. So my friend is, um, is lovely. She's full of Christian faith in the best possible way. And she said to me with tears, I don't know what to pray for. I don't know what to pray for. And the answer came through me right away. And I said, you have to pray for peace. You have to pray for an ease of suffering. And she said, you know, you always know the right thing to say. And I was really grateful for that because I, I wanted so much to be of help to her. But this wasn't me talking to her. It wasn't my logical mind figuring out what the response should be. It was the great luminosity in action. It was paying attention. It was listening. It was letting the helping happen. The, the text again points us, it says, the great luminosity, you don't have to ask what is right or what is wrong, just trusting that you will know. From our sutra, the jewel mirror of awareness, it says, ye with this archer's skill could hit a target at a hundred paces, but when arrow points meet head on, what has this to do with the power of skill, right? This response was not about my skill. It was about arrow points meeting head on. So how do we hear this great luminosity? One way is through silence. I've always been really drawn to silence. I think it was part of the, I know it was part of the big attraction of Zen for me. Uh, and of course, it's a big paradox to speak about it. Um, I talked before about my first experience when I checked myself into a monastery for a weekend of silence and really felt it for the first time. But recently I read a line that struck me in a, in a very special way. And the line was, the thing about silence is it is nowhere. The thing about silence is it is nowhere. Isn't that lovely? I heard this um, 
uh, I was listening to a book called The Comfort Crisis by Michael Easter. And this guy, uh, who's a writer, lives in the city, took a five-day trek into the Alaskan Arctic Circle hunting caribou, which is a whole story in itself. Uh, but he was a, he's a city guy. He goes to the gym five days a week. And all of a sudden, here he is out in the, uh, the, the true outback, far outside his comfort zones. And one of the experiences he recounts is um, he was in great discomfort. Um, and he crawled out from his sleeping bag one morning. It was really cold and it was quiet. And he was staring out at the Brooks Range, which um, some of you may know is just a magnificent mountain range. And he heard this padum, 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 padum. And it took him a minute and then he realized it was his heart he was hearing. Uh, because he was listening, right? And then he hears this whoosh, 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 whoosh. And he compared it to an Apache helicopter because he said it was so loud. Um, and it turned out that in this case, it was a raven. It was a raven flying above. Whoosh. And Although he and we frequently hear the sounds of birds in our lives, we're often not really listening to them. You know, they can get obscured by other human sounds, or at least in my case, by my ordinary mind, which is always full of other things. So I'm not really listening. Um, but in part because there was no other sound, and also in large part because he was being present, right? Many days in the outback and the quiet, sort of like being in session, it was quiet. He could hear the whoosh. Um, I also recently heard a podcast from Dr. Peter Tia, which is one I listen to almost every week. And his guest uh, last week, I think, was uh, Dr. Arthur Brooks, who's a social scientist professor at Harvard and a columnist for The Atlantic. And um, he uses this metaphor of instead of adding brush strokes to the canvas of our life, to start thinking of our life as a sculpture where you have to chip away until you find the true self. So I sort of heard that before about how sculptors carve, but I hadn't really thought about it in terms of my life. Um, he had an experience when he was in the National Palace Museum in Taiwan, um, which has his um, world's greatest collection, apparently, of Chinese art and artifacts. Um, and oh, by the way, one of the things he said is he said, never go to a museum by yourself because you'll remember nothing. He said, go with somebody who knows and who can just show you 10 things that you can pay attention to. So he hired a guide to do this. Uh, so the guide he hired turned out to be a philosopher and an expert in both Eastern and Western art. And uh, so Arthur, Dr. Brooks is looking at this two ton block of jade, which is really intricately carved into a village scene. And and he said to the guide, he said, even if I'd never seen any Chinese art in person, and I were not in Taiwan, if I were in Dayton right now, I would know this is Chinese. How? How, how is it that this, this would look like Chinese to me? And the guide said, well, it's a difference in philosophy. It's the difference in Western and Eastern art. He said, Western art uses the metaphor of starting with nothing and then creating something. Um, and I know this when I write, right? There's the terror of looking at the blank page. Um, and um, I, um, so it's, it's like there's nothing there. But he says in Eastern art, the idea is starting with everything there and then chipping away until you, until you reveal it. 
And I see this in the art of our Sangha. All the time we have so many creative people and you can see that what they've done is just chip away until they've revealed the essence. Um, so I think that's a, a really beautiful metaphor of, of how we listen, right? How we let go of all the other things in our small minds that our small minds want us to listen to until, until whoosh, 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 until we can really hear it. Um, our Dharma sister, Jacqueline, uh, recently wrote a really beautiful piece for the Lion's Roar. She uh, very generously gave me permission to talk about some of it and share it with you here, but, but read it in its entirety. It is a, it's a magnificent article. Um, but for 26 years, and by the way, this, is, this goes on all the time. I find out who someone is in the Sangha, and it just blows me away because we have so little opportunity to know each other, right? We sit, we sit silently with each other. And then um, but Jacqueline, for 26 years, she's been a watchmaker in the luxury time field. Uh, sorry, time peace field. Um, and she says, every morning I sit at my bench, I lay out my tools uh, in a, one movement that's ready to be disassembled, cleaned, lubricated, regulated, and reassembled. I look, I listen, I diagnose, and hopefully I fix. And then I move on to the next time piece. Like, yeah, focus, listening. She's also been a Buddhist hospital chaplain for 12 years. And she says when she goes into a patient's room, it's much the same. She checks the wall for instruction. She sanitizes her hand. She knocks on the door. She takes a breath and enters unhurriedly, really thinking about the patient, the roommate, the space. And then she listens. And she says, when people find out I'm a watchmaker, they want to talk about time. People wonder where their lives have gone. Did they spend too much time at work and not enough time with family and friends? How much time did they give to themselves? Often, she says, they talk about regrets and that there isn't enough time to accomplish anything now because time is running out really quickly. She listens to this. People really feel they never have enough time. They speak about how the passing of time is so fast. It's as if the clock's hands are spinning round and round. And she says, I hear this not only at the hospital, but also at the watch company. But her last line is this. She says, I continue to learn again and again that moment to moment, second to second, right here, right now, we are together in our suffering and our joy. I've experienced this myself, and I've also found a way to stop the pressure of time to put my mind at ease. You know, our tradition says, time passes quickly. Awaken, awaken, take heed. Do not squander your life. Right? Listen. This is listening, showing us peace. So to close, I'd like to talk a little bit um, I, I supplemented my Zen practice when I lived in Vermont by sitting with a local Tibetan group. It was so nice to sit with people and they were lovely. And um, I want to share the words that I heard from one of the Tibetan Rinpoches. Um, and the, 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 the words, the verse was titled, Rest in Natural Great Peace. And if like me, you tend to fidget a little bit towards the end of the talk, um, please take a breath and situate your mind in a place of stillness, and I'll read through this twice. 
rest in natural great peace. This exhausted mind, beaten helplessly by karma and neurotic thoughts. Like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara, rest in natural great peace. Rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helplessly by karma and neurotic thoughts. Like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara, rest in natural great peace. It's offered with my deepest gusho. Thank you.